This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. The voice of non-combatants in telling the story of the Rising is a useful one, not least because they were more likely to survive the conflict. A much clearer picture of the events surrounding Irish nationalist circles from 1913 onwards would be available to historians if Connolly or Pierce had survived to tell their tale, but this of course was not to be. Seamus O'Kelly was a close friend of Owen McNeill, the Chief of Staff of the Irish Volunteers. McNeill himself did not take part in the Rising, although his actions did have a considerable effect on the course of the week. Seamus O'Kelly was an eyewitness to the events leading up to McNeill's countermanding order. I was never a member of the Volunteers. This is how it was. O'Reilly came to me at some Cayley in the mansion house and asked me to join them and participate in their activities. I asked for time to consider it. I informed Owen McNeill of this request, for there was a friendship and understanding between us for a long time before that. Pursue your own interests and your own course, he said to me. But there is many a way you could give us a helping hand, especially if your name was not on any list. And after that I was made use of in many ways. People coming to my house, etc. The Rising was planned out months in advance by the Military Council of the IRB, without the permission of McNeil. Neither McNeil nor O'Kelly were members of the IRB, and adopted the more moderate view that the volunteers' main purpose was a defensive one. The IRB, however, intended to put the force to use in the imminent uprising. In order to get McNeil on board with the plans, they decided to present him with the Castle document, referred to here as the Bogus document. It gave details of planned British army raids on the volunteer organisation and convinced McNeil to allow the Rising to go ahead. Whether or not these documents were genuine, forged or exaggerated is still the subject of some debate amongst historians. Irrespective of their provenance, they had the desired effect. Rory O'Connor, an IRB member, met with O'Kelly to give him the document. Rory was directing the matter. It was he had the information and the instructions. His story was that a plan was laid in the castle against the volunteers, that it was in code, and that a friend of ours had the opportunity of making a copy of it gradually. But it would take time. Twice or three times a part of it was decoded in air presence. At last we had the complete document, the bogus document. When we had the complete document, Rory informed us of Joe Plunkett's opinion that it would be worthwhile to publish the whole proposal in the newspapers to store up the people. It was I gave the first copy of the document to Owen McNeil. I went to look for him in 86 Stevens Green. It was in the staff room I found him. He examined the print. That was the first time he saw it complete. He suggested publicising it. That will startle them, he said. He put the printed paper down in the mouth of his shoe. He put his pistol in his pocket and he went off. That was the Saturday morning of Passion Week, the 15th of April. As a non-member of the volunteers, O'Kelly was used as a messenger for this important job, along with another non-combatant, PJ Little. The absence of his name from any police lists would have made him a safer candidate for the task. Wednesday was fixed on for the publicity. I was in town pretty early. I met Little in Beauty's restaurant. We had coffee. He was going to the Evening Herald. I was making for the Evening Mail 
and the Evening Telegraph. Such adventures were not without risk, having regard to the circumstances of the time. We decided to come back to Bewley's when we had done our work. I went over to the mail and got an opportunity of speaking to the editor. He asked me who I was. I did not tell him my surname, naturally. Doing was his name. I gave him my story and spread out my document. I said I would swear to the veracity of the story. He refused obstinately to use it, but pressed me to give the copy to him. I refused to do so. Over I went to the Herald. Mead was the editor of that. I gave him the document. The evening paper had not yet come out. He read the document. That is strange news, he said, and his tone expressed doubt. You people are on the side of the volunteers, I said, if what you say is true, and it would be well for you to have the news before the other newspapers. Did you give your news to any other paper, he asked. I did, I said. I gave it to the mail, and it will be on the streets before you. He took the telephone. Is that you doing? Was there a bloody mystery man with you just now? I did not hear the answer. What bloody fools we'd be. We'll not touch it either. Now in the devil's name, where are you from? Isn't that a matter of indifference to you? Said I, and off I went out the door without delay. I found Paddy Little in Bewley's. He had no more success than I had. We had another cup of coffee, and after ten minutes we came out in the street. There was great excitement on the footpaths, everybody buying the mail. The other two papers had lost the race. Following the publication of this document, and McNeil's apparent blessing of the plans, McNeil appears to have discovered that the document was a forgery, or at least an exaggeration. He asked O'Kelly if he could hold a meeting in his house the following day, Holy Saturday, the 22nd of April. I did not expect a lot of people in my house that night. I came in around six o'clock. There was one person there already, Seamus O'Connor, a solicitor. He said he had an appointment with Owen McNeil, that he had news for him, and that Owen promised to be present without delay. While waiting, the conversation started. He told me a thing I was not sure of till then although the indications were not lacking that there was to be a rising against the British the following day. After a while, Owen McNeil himself came in. I left them together. Very soon, Arthur Griffith and the O'Rahilly were there. Sean T. O'Kelly was one of the people. All those collecting into the front room. Much later, another group came in. The people who were to be messengers to the counties later in the night. All those remained in the back room or they sat on the stairs as the house was overflowing with people. Arthur Griffith, Owen McNeil signing orders in front room, people coming and going, notifications being sent out to the people they wanted, most of these arriving on bicycles, some in cabs, some in cars. There was a row of cars and such things stretching along past the church. The street lights were scanty enough and every man that was making for the place had to scrutinise the gate with a pocket torch. There was never a plot or conspiracy accompanied by more noise and less secrecy. At that time, number 54 across the road was an empty house. Lights were to be seen in one of its rooms. When everybody was gone from us, an airhouse empty, two people who were unknown to us came out of that house in the dark. This meeting saw the decision to countermand the mobilisation orders for the following day, Easter Sunday. 
This last-minute decision was a disaster for the IRB, who were watching years of planning crumble before them. The night wore on. Around midnight, the majority of the messengers were gone to the counties. Sometime about one o'clock, Owen McNeil started out for the city. The order was to be published in the Sunday Independent and to be distributed in that way through the country. He came back and he had more news that his co-plotters were not expecting when he sat out. The notice was in time for the papers, but he got news that a ship or boat landed in Kerry and that a person who was on the boat had been arrested by the police. All the people in the house had collected about Owen in the hall as he was giving the results of his journey to the city. I don't think half of them understood the meaning of that story, or that they were competent to assess the significance of it. Anyway, it produced a saddening and depressing effect on the hearts of many of them, and they realised that our hopes of assisting from abroad was now less than ever. Owen was the last to go home. I accompanied him to the gate. It was three o'clock. He had a bicycle and he wore a tweed cap and coat. He left me, wishing God to protect me. I gave him the same blessing. I remember I was thinking of Pierce as he went away. Three months before, after Christmas, as we walked on the flags in front of St. Enda's school, Pierce assured me as a secret that there would be an insurrection and that we would get help from foreign countries before the year was far gone. Was Pierce's dream at an end now? This version of events suggests that McNeil did not know about the loss of the shipment of arms carried by the odd on Roger Casement's arrest at the time he issued the countermanding order, contrary to the common perception. This is indicative of the confused and tense situation that pervaded over Easter weekend in 1916. From that moment on, mythology became intertwined with facts, and every differing version of the story carried its own politically charged motivations. The place was, of course, in a state of confusion. When the house was empty, I thought it was better to remove every trace of our activity. Therefore, I put everything in the form of documents in the fire. We went to bed, but not to sleep. We were not long thus, when there was a knock on the hall door. The guardians of the law, most likely. But it was quite the opposite sort of people that were on the doorstep. There were Tom McDonough and Joe Plunkett. Plunkett did not open his mouth. It was the other man that spoke. Is Owen McNeil here? No, said I. Where is he to be found? He went to Woodtown. Shall we go out to him, asked Tom. Indeed and we shan't, said the other man. God help the poor man, said Tom kindly and sympathetically, and they both went away. It was daybreak by this time. The military council of the IRB, made up of the seven signatories of the proclamation of the Irish Republic, had decided to go ahead with the rising. It was a bad setback. Roughly 1,200 volunteers, of a possible 10,000 or so, turned out for the postponed rising on Easter Monday. Almost no action took place outside Dublin, where word of the restored plans failed to travel. McNeil undoubtedly saved the lives of many volunteers by denying them the chance to fight. Whether the rising would have had any other outcome with a full force of volunteers is a matter for debate beyond the scope of this piece. Seamus O'Kelly provides a unique eyewitness account of the last-minute chaos surrounding the litany of woes that befell the plans for the uprising. It raises a number of questions about the accepted timeline associated with the lead-up to the Rising. 100 years on, we might be further than ever from establishing the facts. At the same time, perhaps only now, are we far enough removed from the events to discuss it dispassionately. 
For other less well-known stories from this interesting period in Irish history, go to www.storiesfrom1916.com. Seamus O'Kelly's military witness statement was read here by actor Rick Byrne. I'm Owen Cody. Thanks for listening.